This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This is The View From Somewhere, a podcast about journalism with a purpose. I'm producer Ramona Martinez, and we wanted to extend a huge and sincere thanks to everyone who gave to our recent fundraiser. Thanks to y'all, we're back in production through the rest of the season. If you're just listening for the first time, welcome. This podcast is serialized, so we recommend going back and listening from the start if you like what you hear today. Thanks, and enjoy the show. So whenever I'm interviewing Latinas, even like before I say anything, I'm like, um, can you please take off your bracelets? Thank you. <laughs> Cause we jingle. We talk like this. <laughs> this is Brenda Salinas, a radio reporter and producer who's worked in public radio and now works at Google News. She traces her interest in storytelling to the women in her family. My mom and my godmother and my aunts, I remember just wanting to be at the table while they were telling stories because they were just so funny and soulful and powerful. Um, And my mom, in a way, is a reporter, too. Like, she's the type of person who, like, in the bathroom stall will, like, comment on the lady's shoes next to her and, like, strike up a conversation. I have been at an airport with her have gone to do something for five minutes and I come back and she has like all the stories of everybody in the <laughs> in the in the terminal because she's like eavesdropping and asking them questions and I'm like these are skills that I didn't learn at NPR these are skills that are a part of my culture she got into listening to NPR in high school because her white teachers kept talking about it and she wanted to know what was up And I really loved that it made me smarter, that it made me understand the world in a nuanced way. Um, And I just kept listening to it as much as I could. And then I heard Maria Hinojosa on the radio for um, Latino USA. I must have been around 15. From NPR and the Futuro Media Group, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Everybody thinks it and that's the first time that I realized that somebody like me could tell stories on the radio. It was a really powerful moment. Her first radio gig was interning at Houston's public radio station. And pretty quickly after that, she got an elite croc fellowship at NPR in D.C., then worked at Latino USA with the one and only Maria Hinojosa. Brenda was on the star track. Then she got a call from a station in Texas that was launching a statewide show. In 2014, she became a founding producer and the only Latina on staff. And the tokenism started right away. Uh, Lulu Garcia Navarro calls it the tortilla beat. Like, I was sort of the go-to person for stories about Mexican culture. But when it came to stories about immigration, it wasn't because I'm an immigrant myself. It wasn't trusted that I could do those stories. I was seen as, like, too close to the story. But it's like, oh, but I'm not close to the story about the breakfast tacos. You know, like, (laughs) that's a part of my life, too, as much as my immigration is, you know. It was not particularly subtle. You know, this presidential candidate is calling Mexicans 
rapists and criminals. And I said something in a meeting like, oh, maybe this is the moment where the Latino base really mobilizes. And I was told like, okay, that's an interesting idea. We're going to hand it off to somebody else. Her pitches for stories, like those of many journalists of color, also weren't taken seriously, probably even more so because she was young. I've been at many editorial meetings with a bunch of white editors who will pitch things like, I was in my neighborhood the other day and, or like, I overheard this at my kid's school, or I met this lady at the grocery store. And it's like, okay, you all live in the same three neighborhoods. What type of stories do you think you're going to get? The worst, worst Part of it is when you have a story and they ask you, oh, what's the news hook? Or like, oh, I'm not sure that's a story. You know, sort of they want to take your experience and like run it through this computer program. I don't know, this filter and they get to decide like, like, does this compute? Does this not compute? And because we have lived experiences, like sometimes you just have to trust the other person like, you know my work. If I'm telling you this is a story, this is a story. And what's the news hook? The news hook is that it's happening. So in theory, they wanted her there to add to the newsroom diversity and because she was so experienced and talented. But the fact that she was a Latina also meant her ideas weren't given the same weight. Which means she was being tokenized, not respected for the life experience that she brought to the room on her terms. And what could she do in that situation? At KUT, like, I just thought, and I've talked to a lot of people who've had similar experience. I thought if I just kept doing more work, the situation there would improve. And it was actually the opposite. I was giving more and more and more and more to myself to an organization, a system that didn't really value me. It sort of, it wanted my stories, but it didn't want me to have any power. This is The View From Somewhere, a podcast about journalism with a purpose. I'm your host, Lewis Raven-Wallace. Today, we're talking about public media and why it still doesn't reflect the actual whole public in the U.S. It turns out public radio has been trying to address its diversity problem since the 1970s. And we'll meet another Latina who was around in the early part of that struggle. We'll also talk about how journalists of color are surviving in newsrooms that claim to want diverse voices, but don't treat them equitably. Plus, how racism keeps us from having the archives we need. Stay with us. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. 
behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Brenda Salinas was struggling to navigate this job at KUT in Austin. It wasn't just the problem of being alternately scrutinized and ignored in pitch meetings. Pretty soon, her targeting as a young Latina became more extreme. I had a manager who I felt like they just had really bad anxiety or something. Like they were just like always, I know they had a lot of pressure and they were always really tense and they tended to lash out at people. And I noticed, I mean, it was very clear that the people that they were lashing out at were people of color and women, right? But I, because I came from national, I was this like wonderkind. We got along at first. I was sort of like immune from it. And then I started speaking up about diversity. I started, um, you know, when someone got berated or had their deadlines moved up for no reason or just, you know, all the bullshit that editors can pull when they want to break you. When I started speaking up about that, um, I became a target of the abuse too. For example, Brenda would get an assignment at 12 p.m. saying it was for 4 p.m. But then at 1.30, her editor would say, hey, I'm actually leaving early, so you have to have this to me by 2. And when that deadline wasn't met, she would get blamed for it. And this person that was like, you know, berating people and being really abusive and um, erratic and sort of gaslighting, when we brought this up to, to their attention, they would say, oh, well, this is like, the way that I was brought up in newsrooms. This is a rite of passage. And a really insidious part of it, Brenda says, is all the white people who looked the other way while this happened. You know, these these newsrooms tend to be open concept newsrooms. So everybody knows what's going on um, at all times. And I remember being berated in the middle of the newsroom, I looked over to this white man who put on his headphones and looked away. And that was like really the part that crushed crushed me. I was like, oh, people know and they don't care because white men, first of all, like I feel like a lot of the times the white men who do act as allies expect some sort of medal for... <laughs> And I'm like, no, dude, like you don't get a medal. This should be a requirement for living in a multi multicultural world. You should support people who don't look like you. But the men who choose not to do it, they say, oh, well, I have a wife. I have a family. I have kids in private school. I can't afford to take a stand. When really, like, I can't afford to take a stand either. I was just conscripted into this war that you can, like, be on the sidelines of. Just a few months onto the job, she was told to report instances of abuse to HR, to document it. And she did, but HR believed it was a personal issue, her personal issue. They suggested mediation training for her. There got to be a point where I could not walk into the office without taking a Xanax because I would have a panic attack. Because it was always this anxiety of like, am I going to be the person that gets yelled at today? 
for no reason. <laughs> so after less than a year at KUT, she decided to quit. This person's not going to break me. I need to remove myself from the situation. And it was a really hard decision. My parents were not happy with me. Neither of them had ever quit jobs before. Um, I was under 26, so I was still on their insurance, thank God. That helped me convince them a little bit. And I had to tell my mom, like, for the next couple months when I call you, no matter how stressed out you are, no matter how worried you are for me, I need you to tell me, sweetie, you're doing amazing. We're so proud of you. (laughs) Once she left, she started to really look at the big picture. Not just the abuse, but what was allowing the abuse to go on. Who was complicit in that? I think we need to be defined by what is the worst behavior that we're willing to tolerate? Because that's the behavior that everybody talks about and the behavior that really um, sets morale. So it's really a bottom line type of thing. So sometimes people are like, oh, but everyone's so wonderful. Okay, but like you let harassers go unpunished. Public media has a problem retaining journalists of color, particularly young talents like Brenda. And a lot of it has to do with this internal culture of deference to authority. And of course, the double standard with which that's applied. If you're new or young or an intern or the only ex in the room, you're kind of expected to go along with editorial leadership and not push back too much. Assertiveness is valued in white cis men, but not necessarily everyone else. And that culture thinks of diversity like an automaton that you plug in, and then voila, these diverse voices will be deferential and part of the culture. But according to Brenda, that's not how true diversity works. And if I, as a manager, if I hire 10 people who look differently than I do, with very different experiences, they are going to call me out on my bullshit. And they should. Like, that's why I hired them. As journalists, we don't have the luxury of being comfortable. If you're a journalist and you're comfortable, you're not a very good journalist. You should be uncomfortable every single day of your life. Journalists should be able to sit with discomfort and often do when it comes to tough sources and stories. But what about when it comes to confronting power dynamics within the newsroom or oppressive attitudes within ourselves? Lewis. Hey, Ramona. Hey, I just, I wanted to say something after hearing Brenda's story. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I obviously heard it a couple of times now, but it wasn't until the third time that I was listening to her talk. And especially the part when she said um, that she had to take a Xanax before coming into work every day. I realized that I actually went through a super similar experience to this. Um, the only Latina on an all-white production staff, an older white manager who was super abusive, like emotionally abusive with the way that, you know, they treated the producers, especially me. And like, yeah, I was definitely self-medicating just to, you know, like survive the workday. And yeah, I guess, I guess I realized that I had always thought about what happened to me as just like 
oh, you know, this person really should have gone to therapy and like just an individual beef kind of thing. But it's actually, yeah, it's part of a larger systemic thing. Wow. I'm so sorry that happened to you. And also like glad that hearing Brenda's story could sort of resonate and um, help you think about that experience differently. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, definitely every time I apply for a job, you know, I think, like, how much of my, like, Latinness is being considered, like, whether or not I'm going to be hired, right? And, like, in this case, you know, I definitely was hired to increase the diversity of the production team. And then, like, this happened to me. Um, Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it's this tricky thing. It feels familiar to me, too, as a white trans person in public media. You know, I was brought in as part of this diversity program, which is a good thing, I think. Uh, And at least some people were, like, happy to feel like they had a trans person in the mix and they were nice about it. But they're pretty defensive and uncomfortable when I would actually speak up for myself. Uh, for my values or for my community so which then totally defeats the purpose of diversifying your newsroom Mm -hmm. and the diversity efforts in public media aren't going very well at all like npr's most recent diversity numbers were really bad less than eight percent of the newsroom is hispanic or latinx a little under 10 percent is black and even with those numbers the experience of being at or listening to npr is super white dominated After all these years, and as I learned when I was researching for my book, people have been pushing back on this and trying to change this almost as long as public media has existed. It was founded in 1968. The problems back then led us to the problems we have now. So Brenda Salinas' story and yours have dozens, maybe even hundreds of antecedents. I came across someone who was literally on a task force about public media diversity in the 1970s. And I'm going to turn it over now to Ramona to introduce her. Cecilia Garcia says when she came of age in Detroit, Michigan in the late 50s, early 60s, she was kind of a rabble rouser, like a lot of people we featured on this show. My college uh, career was, you know pretty iffy. I, I, I went for a couple of years to a small Catholic college, got very bored. Um, my only fun was actually participating in the strikes that we, we, we would have all the time. She had an uncle who worked in TV and being politically minded, she knew television was a form of power, one that her Latino community didn't have enough access to. My Main motivation was my family. My, uh, I have, I'm the second youngest of six. I have uh, now, I guess, 19 or 20 nieces and nephews. Um, I didn't, I wanted them to be able to see something on television that mirrored their experience, or at least mirrored who they were. There was. I didn't want their only frame of reference on television to be the Frito Bandito or Sergeant Garcia on Zorro. You know, that's my brothers and sisters and I, that's what we grew up with. I wanted better for them, and I knew we could do it. So in the early 70s, just a couple of years after public media first became a thing, 
she and this group of young Latinx folks were like, let's do this, let's make our own show. None of them had television experience or really knew what that entailed. They reached out to civil rights attorneys about how they could get it on the air. And they, they helped advise us and said, you know, your best bet is to go to public broadcasting because, you know, that's what the P stands for, you know, public. Now, a moment about the P in public media. It was brand new at the time, the whole public system of TV and radio created by the Public Broadcasting Act of 1967 under Lyndon B. Johnson. That established the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, or CPB, which supported both PBS, public TV, and later NPR, which was founded in 1970. The vision, in part, was that these public assets would create access for those who couldn't get their voices into corporate media. It's how we got Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers and the PBS NewsHour. But groups like Cecilia Garcia's had to push to get their programs on public TV. It was a little harder than we thought. Um, we thought they would just love the opportunity, uh, you know, to make their, their airwaves more relevant. But they kind of gave us the runaround and, uh, you know, made us keep coming back for more meetings and more meetings. And finally, they just kind of, I think we wore them down. And they finally said, okay, here's the deal. You come in on, let's say, Wednesday night is your production night. You come in, we'll have a crew there for you and have at it. So in the meantime, you know, we're all looking at each other like, well, okay, now what? <laughs> now what do we do? So she picked up all the skills she could, as quickly as she could. I made it my, my business to learn everything I could about the way television is made. I made myself a nuisance. I was in every room. I was determined that they would not say, um, that we didn't try or that we couldn't cut it or, you know, to give them any excuse at all like that. And so we lasted seven years. Seven years. Seven years. We produced Potomi Pueblo uh, in 1973 until 1979. And we called it a bilingual news magazine. She was proud of the fact that they covered issues for the large Latinx community in Detroit based on their feedback, which wasn't happening in any other TV news. My goal was to let the broader community understand the complexity of the Latino community. It was very, it was, it was complex. It was not a, a simple community to cover. We covered, we wanted to cover issues that our community reported back to us and said, look, you know, these things are important to us. They had their local show, but national programming was still overwhelmingly white. And groups like hers didn't have enough sway over PBS, the national network, to get their shows funded or aired with national support. The money that would go into productions never went to... Um, any minority producers, frankly, but especially not Latino producers. So they formed a group called the Latino Consortium. Instead of waiting for national distribution, they would do what's called bicycling their shows. She would take this two-inch videotape and mail it to a producer in, say, Boston to air on their station. 
then that producer would mail that same tape to Los Angeles to play there, and so on. So you didn't have the cost of copying and distributing the tape, it was just passed along. I asked Cecilia over the phone if she had any tapes of Para Mi Pueblo that we could use in this episode. You might be able to hear my reaction through her receiver when she answers my question. Archival stuff from my program? <laughs> we reused tape. We reused videotape un un until the oxide fell off. I'm serious. I'm serious. Seven years of programming about the Latinx community in 70s Detroit is lost to history. That means that producers like me don't have access to archive tape. And even beyond that, people trying to research the history of Detroit or Midwestern Latino populations have lost this huge resource. And it's all because Cecilia and her producers didn't have the resources to save videotapes. The fact that they had so little support definitely speaks to the structural problem they were up against. There weren't enough people of color in leadership in public media, making those decisions about funding and programming. A lot of people recognized this as a problem, even early on. Uh, in 1976 or 77, um, I was contacted by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting to be part of a task force on, um, that would look at and study the state of minorities in public broadcasting. And there were about 28 of us. So she and a few dozen people from across the system, radio and TV, were asked to study every aspect of it. Distribution, programming, staff, who was in charge. And they issued a report that was really damning. Here's the opening statement, quote, the task force must conclude that the public broadcast system is asleep at the transmitter. The report called PBS and NPR's diversity numbers appalling. The main uh, finding was that minorities have been left out and, will, and have continued to be left out of all major uh, points of decision-making uh, and unless you know, drastic steps would be taken, they, this, would, this trend would continue. Um, and I'm, frankly, I'm not so sure how far we've come from 1977. The task force made dozens of recommendations about how to change programming, leadership, and audience assessment to lead a more diverse and representative public media. But many of these were never implemented. So what happened? Why haven't things really changed? So I looked as deep into this as I could go when I was researching for my book and concluded that basically the reasons public media never really embraced its idealistic founding vision were money and politics. And of course, feeding into those is always just straight up racism. So that familiar trifecta. Ugh, right. Well, talk us through the money thing first, I guess. That one's a little easier to stomach. 
Basically, even though public media is partly funded by the government, it's never been fully funded that way. So it's always depended on donations and underwriting, sponsorship. You know, Morning Edition is brought to you by... P- pajamagrams. Right, pajamagrams. It's dependent on pajamagrams to survive. And so that underwriting creates an incentive to serve wealthier, whiter populations to make more money, which in turn created a kind of slippery slope toward a corporate approach. And you hear that even in Cecilia's story, how producers of color couldn't get their programs distributed nationally, partly because the perception was that they weren't marketable for a quote-unquote general audience. And so the whole thing has never been truly public. And then what about the politics part of it? Yeah, every federal budget season, we know there are these super politicized attacks on public TV and radio. Conservative organizations like this watchdog group founded in the 70s called Accuracy in Media started early and they would go after anything on topics they didn't like. So sex education, incarcerated youth, immigration, gay rights, and say that it was biased and shouldn't receive public funding. Then they'd insist that public media perform balance by giving a platform to radically conservative people. And that strategy worked? Absolutely. It, it started in the 1970s. It preyed on racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia that was already present in the culture. So the right wing would depict people of color and women and trans people's issues as threats to public media's neutrality. By the late 1980s, public media was regularly giving a platform to people like Pat Buchanan, a notorious homophobe and liar who once said AIDS was God taking revenge on gay people. And newsroom leaders within public media were warning their staff to not be controversial. Which really means, like, don't piss off the conservative people who are watching our every move and could potentially threaten our funding. Right. And then, of course, on top of all those external factors, there's the racism, the tokenism in the newsroom. Stories like Brenda's and so many others that have led Black and Indigenous people of color, queer and trans folks to just quit or get fired. Depressing. I know. But don't worry, because Brenda Salinas is about to share some inspiring stuff with us. So I want to get back to her. By the time she left KUT, Brenda was exhausted, but she had learned a lot. And after I quit, I started putting a lot of habits in place to protect myself, to protect my creativity, to nurture myself, um, and to really become that prolific writer and radio producer that I had always been. It took me about six weeks. It felt like it took forever. But I got there, and I'm still there, and I tend to protect myself better now. She started mentoring other people of color in radio through an NPR program called Next Gen. But after the Me Too movement really hit in public media in 2017, and the extent of abuse that had been occurring was revealed, Brenda had serious reservations about even advising young women of color to go into public media. How can I, in good faith, train people to enter these toxic environments and not tell them the truth about what's happening? And so I talked to Doug Mitchell, who is the head of NPR Next Generation, and he said, well, maybe we need to develop a different type of training for them. 
At the time, she was interested in war correspondence, reading a lot of conflict reporting guides, and she had this idea. You know what we need? We need a conflict reporting guide for people of color and marginalized people in majority white newsrooms. Because when you're in these spaces, it can feel like you're in a battle zone. You're battling to preserve your own creativity. A conflict reporting guide, that definitely says a lot. So she did create this guide and training for journalists of color called Protect Your Magic. The language was actually inspired by a friend of mine, Nick Daly, who works with people of color in higher ed and talks a lot about protecting and preserving your magic in that environment. I always start with the meditation and I tell people like, think of all the things that make you special, all those little touches that let me know that a story is your story even before I hear your voice or before I see your va- before I see your byline. Your sense of humor, the people in your community, all the things that make you you. That is your magic. And you want to get to a place where you can take your magic to work with you. But the reality is that's not always going to be the place that you're at. So you need to be very proactive about protecting your magic. So who gets to see your magic? Um, Who gets to tap into your magic? And who do you keep your magic away from? Because being creative, being creative is being vulnerable. There's no way to be creative without exposing these like raw nerves inside yourself. And if you're in an unsafe environment, people are just going to keep poking at those nerves until you, you break down. So you need to have discipline in terms of what are the habits that I need to take on? What are the ways that I need to nourish myself to make sure that my magic stays intact and that it's for me and I get to share it with the people and the audiences that I want to share it with on my terms? People often ask me, is there any hope for public media? Is it getting better? Is it going to? I honestly don't know. So I asked Brenda what she thinks. I don't think that in 15 years, public media is going to look the way public media looks like now. Um, I think technology is going to be changing things really, really fast. So if you're a creator and you're a person of color, I would say focus on your craft, focus on your storytelling. The platforms might change, but the stories are not going to change. We've been telling stories to each other for thousands of years. It's how our brains evolved. So as long as you focus on the craft, I do think you can be ready for the future. Um, We don't necessarily have to burn public media down because I think it's doing a pretty good job of burning itself down. I mean, the thing is, I don't really want public media to burn itself down. I want the people who need it most to take it over. Like, imagine if we had public media newsrooms that were run by people like Brenda Salinas and Ramona Martinez and our editor, Carla Murphy. What would the ethics and values be? Who would get those jobs? What stories would be told and archived that aren't now? Public media should, and I think could, belong to the community, which means striving to serve the parts of the community that have the least space on corporate platforms. And I really believe that feminist, anti-racist newsrooms are possible. But that can't happen as long as this newsroom culture of deference and selective silencing continues. The thing that pushed Brenda and me and Ramona all out of public media. 
It's happened to so many people, y'all. I know because they contact me all the time with these stories. Black and indigenous people, people of color, trans and queer people, and women, this ongoing problem of people being pushed out isn't going to go away until we address the fact that just taking our stories and creativity and tokenizing us can't work. We need shifts in actual power. And that means the people in charge now will need to give something up. Only then can we have a public media that actually serves the public, serves justice and democracy in a real way. But call me naive, I still think it's worth putting the pressure on these institutions to change. Working from the inside and protecting your magic, or from the outside like we are, the airwaves are public and they should belong to all of us. We do have some formidable obstacles in this effort. All the folks in the newsrooms who are complicit, plus the gatekeeping surrounding objectivity and balance that we've been talking about all season. And there are the conservative media activists, changing the terms of the debate so that public media forever has to balance marginalized voices with racist or homophobic ones. And this conservative activism is a really important piece of how we got here that I think we need to really dig into why the far right had the power to reframe objectivity and pull even liberal media toward the right in the last few decades. Which is what we're going to do on the next episode about the view from the right wing and the colonization of doubt. It's not just that people are hoaxing more, it's also that people are accusing other people of things that are true to be hoaxes. I'm so excited about having Kevin Young on this next episode. Yeah, so hey, The View From Somewhere is distributed by Critical Frequency, supported by our Kickstarter backers, we love you, and produced by rock star Gemini, Ramona Martinez. This episode was edited by Carla Murphy, with special thanks to Brenda Salinas for protecting her magic and sharing it with us all, and Kanita Stringer Standback for the utterly crispy editing advice. Billy D does our art, and our theme music is by Dogbotic, with additional music by Poddington Bear. Roxana Bendezu with Migrant Roots Media is our social media producer. We'll be back in a couple weeks. See you next time. Um, Ramona, can you like make theme music sounds to like help me get in the mood? Yeah, totally. <laughs> 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 <laughs>